this is of paramount importance uh, to remember that in all of the labors of men that we're observing, we're seeing the exalted Christ having risen and ascended and sent forth his spirit into the world. It is Christ himself by his spirit in the world that is doing these works. And, and to not miss that is crucial. We are Christians. We serve Christ who is in heaven bodily, but who is in this world spiritually through his spirit, accomplishing the building of his church. It is he that builds it. And uh, it, 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 it creates great poverty in our own spiritual health if we fail to recognize Christ in this world, in our midst, uh, even as we gather from Sunday to Sunday, accomplishing his work uh, through men and through sinful men, but in the midst of his enemies. He hasn't dispersed his enemies yet. They're all about us. Uh, and yet he's ruling in the midst of his enemies, which leads us to Psalm 110. So I'd like us just to look at the first two and a half verses, and then we'll open in prayer and and speed along. Psalm 110, this is a psalm of David. It is prophetic of the Lord Jesus Christ in his exalted station. And and it's one of the most quoted passages from the Old Testament by the apostles in the New Testament. It, It may perhaps be the most quoted, I'm not sure. But we'll read these first two and a half verses. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as always, as the first matter of importance, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who you spared not, but gave up for us all. And then how much more, as the the writer says, how much more shall you not with him also freely give us all things? Be with us in this hour and in the coming hour. Help us to be sensible and to believe in your presence in our midst, as you promised. And we dare not call you a liar. Lord, let us walk in the faith of your promise and in the palpable sense of your presence among us. And thank you for it. We thank you for your spirit, again, whom you've caused to dwell within us. Cause us to cry out with a lively faith, to call upon you, and to receive help and grace in time of need. So be with us now, we ask. In in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're shifting a little bit again uh, to Calvin. And uh, Farrell will loom large this morning and next week also, especially this morning, though. So we we want to look, uh, come out of Germany and go into France and then Switzerland this morning. So we'll be in in France and Switzerland primarily, uh, exclusively, actually. Uh, No, I take that back, primarily. Primarily. So we want to look at Calvin in his early life and conversion, and then we want to look at Farrell, again, in his intensive missionary labors. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, 
It's a thrilling story, and we're just barely touching the tip of the iceberg uh, with regards to Farrell and his missionary labors. But then, uh, at the end, we want to see the convergence of Calvin and Farrell in the, the, uh, the southern city in Switzerland, Geneva, which is the town, it will become the town of Calvin, uh, just as, as Basel was the, the city of Echolampadius and Zwingli's city was Zurich and Luther's was, was Wittenberg, uh, Geneva and Calvin are inextricably linked. So that's where we'll end this morning at his arrival uh, in Geneva. And then next week we'll just continue the story from there. All right, so last week, if you remember, early in the hour, we had, uh, we had Farrell being expelled from Basel, mainly through the antagonism of Erasmus. So Farrell went to Strasbourg and joined, uh, there's so many names here, joined Bucer. Martin Bucer there, and then within a year, Lefebvre had left Meaux in France, uh, fleeing again from the persecution, and landed in Basel, so, or Strasbourg, rather, I'm sorry. So, so we briefly mentioned the reunion of Farrell and Lefebvre with, centered around Bucer in Strasbourg. We left them there, and then we moved on to uh, talk about the, the uh, Diet of Spire, and then Marburg, which was our major emphasis last week. So we want to go back to Farrell. And uh, late 1525, Farrell and Lefebvre are in Strasbourg with Bucer. At that same time, the end of 1525, that's when Luther's Bondage of the Will came out in response to Erasmus's diatribe. And also the end of 1525, we have William Tyndale having left England, uh, just finishing up the last touches of his New Testament out of the Greek. First in Cologne, it, he started printing it in Cologne. Uh, that was discovered, and so he hastily gathered up all of the manuscripts and fled, uh, and he ended up in Worms, where that New Testament came off the presses in early 1526 and went across the channel to England. So we have all this going on at the end of 1525. And then I briefly mentioned, also at that same time, Calvin in Paris as a young 16-year-old student at the University of Paris. So that's where we want to pick up now with, with Calvin while all these other things are going on afield. So Calvin uh, in Paris... At the end of 1525, where, where uh, Farrell and Lefebvre had recently fled. So you have, again, that, that contrast. The, the evangelicals are being persecuted. Our heroes of, of the Reformation heretofore are having to leave because of the persecution. But we have, have one of the great heroes just beginning his education, coming into that, that infestation, if you will, of antagonism against the gospel. So he first began to study theology, uh, but then, according to the will of his father, he switched from theology to the law, and he began studying law and uh, philosophy. He, Calvin is, all things considered, probably the most well-educated of all of the great magisterial reformers. He was, he was trained in the humanist tradition, uh, 
the theology of the schoolmen, and uh, philosophically minded, philosophically bent. Uh, very, very good with words in his writing. So this is, this is how he's developing as a 16, 17-year-old in Paris. And uh, all the while, he's being, he's being taught the errors of Rome and being taught to embrace them deeply emotionally, not just intellectually, but to love them, very much like Farrell did when he was in his student days uh, before he met up with Lefebvre. I was at that time, says Calvin, so obstinately given to superstitions, to the superstitions of popery, that it seemed impossible that I should ever be pulled out of the deep mire. Well, this is almost exactly, if you remember, the language that Farrell used about his own time in, in idolatry, in Roman idolatry, in the mass, in the worship of the saints, and so forth. Well, like Farrell as well, who went through this whole process 20 years or so earlier, uh, Calvin was almost fanatical in his devotion. He kept every vigil. He fasted continually. He attended every mass diligently. He studied the schoolmen so intensely that uh, often he spent... He spent nights without sleep, fasting without sleep, uh, wasted his body away, really, at a young age, pursuing the righteousness of the law, in essence, to use Pauline language. But he had a close cousin, and uh, this is a cousin that's a link between Farrell and Calvin. The cousin's name, who was a, a few years older than him, was Pierre Robert Olivetan. Pierre Olivetan. Uh, Olivetan had been a student with Farrell of Lefebvre. And he had been converted several years earlier under Lefebvre through his study of the scriptures, as many of these other men we've discovered, through his studying the scriptures in the original languages, in the, in the original Hebrew, in the original Greek. That was a, a favorite method, as we recall, of, of uh, Lefebvre. A few years after the period that we're at right now, Olivetan would become world famous, really, because of his translation into the French of the, from the original languages, from Hebrew and Greek. In the year 1534, he put out uh, basically the equivalent of Tyndale's work in English. Olivetan did exactly the same thing in the French language. And he did this largely at the, uh, the compelling of Farrell. Farrell was always compelling men, and we'll see that in relation to Calvin in just a few minutes. He was always compelling men into the work of the Lord, hardly even giving them a choice, so that men were just, I have no choice. You're you're drafting me into the army of the Lord. What can I do? What can I say? Uh, He he made them feel as, as if, as I've already alluded to, as if the Lord's presence in the church was there, compelling and commanding them himself. It was an amazing uh, efficacy that he wielded. Well, so here we have Olivetan and Calvin. Calvin, 16, 17, 18 years old in that neighborhood, talking together, sometimes late at night with the lamps lit, uh, arguing between the evangelical side of things, which Olivetan was coming from, and Calvin's side of, of the papacy and devotion to the Pope and the traditions of the church. True religion, said Olivetan to his cousin, true religion is not that infinite mass of ceremonies and observances 
which the church imposes upon its followers and which separates souls from Christ. Oh, my dear friend, listen to the prophets. Listen to the apostles. Study the scriptures. Well, that's a note we've been hearing recurringly. Calvin said, My heart, hardened by superstition, remained insensible to all these appeals. Uh, he, he even went so far as, as to pray, and repeatedly and often, pray to the saints uh, for his cousin, that he would be won back over in, into, the, into the, uh, the mother church, if you will. Uh, those prayers, every single one of them, as, as time proved, failed. But, on the other hand, uh, Olivetan's prayers for his husband, for his husband, for his cousin, uh, prevailed, prevailed gloriously. Well, it was reverence for the church at this time that was chief in Calvin's mind. And, and this is typical. This is, not, uh, this is not uncommon and it's not unique to him. It's reverence for the church that hardened him against the scripture. You, again, you remember this with Pharaoh. What do I do? I'm reading the scriptures. They say one thing, but the church tells me that this is what it means, not what I think that it means. And so which way am I going to go? Well, I'm not so... Pompous is to think that my opinion is right over the centuries of tradition in the church. So I'm going to just deny my own sense of things and go with the church. Well, this was Calvin's view too. The church is so great, infallible, it cannot err. And so this reverence for the church, he said, hardened him against the scripture. Offended by the novelty of the things that Olivetan was saying and by what he saw in the scripture. Offended by the novelty, I lent an unwilling ear. And at first... At first, that's key, I strenuously and passionately resisted. But as Olivetan continued giving him the word of God, uh, it began to have its effect on, on Calvin. Little by little, first it began with the spirit of bondage, as, as Paul uses that language, uh, under conviction of sin. Very much like Luther's anfectum began to set in in, in in Calvin's own mind. He doesn't say much about it. He's not very autobiographical. There's a few things later on that he says in some of his commentaries that make definite reference uh, to his early experience. But he's not so effusive in his autobiographical reflections as Luther is. Luther gives us, gives us a tremendous amount of material to understand the man. Calvin is, 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 is much more mysterious here and, and brief and taciturn when he comes to speak of himself. But this is so much, so much as he tells us we have here, which is very brief. He says, whenever I descended into myself or raised my mind to thee, O Lord, extreme terror seized me, terror which no expiations nor satisfactions could cure. You see this conviction, this convicting work of the law being uh, beginning to set in, much like Paul in Romans 7 talked about his own experience when Paul said, I was alive apart from the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the law which was ordained to life, I found to be unto me death. Well, this is what Calvin is experiencing. But then he goes on and he says, since I was too obstinately devoted to the superstitions of popery to be easily extracted from so profound an abyss, God, by a sudden conversion, not before his conviction of sin, but after his conviction of sin, God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame 
And having thus received some taste and knowledge of true godliness, what went before was not true godliness. He thought it was, much like Paul the Apostle, uh, in his zeal for persecuting the church. thought that he was, he was going well beyond all of his religious peers in righteousness. And yet it, it, it wasn't true. It simply wasn't true. And this is what Calvin is admitting about himself and all of his labors up to this point. Having thus received some taste and knowledge of true godliness, I was immediately inflamed with an intense desire to make progress therein. Thou, O Lord, didst shine upon me with thy brightness, with the brightness of thy spirit, and didst bear before me the torch of thy word. Thou hast touched my heart that I might abominate all other merit save that of Jesus. You see right here the seeds of the incredible zeal against the superstitions, against the abuses, against the defaming of the glory and the work of Christ. This is where it comes from. Uh, these men, these reformers, are not zealous against those things that strike at Christ's glory as a, as a first impulse, but it's because of their love, because of their zeal, delight, and value on Christ Himself in His person and His work. That is the seed, that is the germ of all of the animosity, if you will, of all of the negativity, if you will, that these reformers had against the abuses of the church. It's important to get that order right. It's very important. It's love that beget the righteous hate and the righteous indignation and the righteous zeal. Well, this was going on in Calvin's mind in this conversion, finally, roughly in the years that we were looking at last week, between 1529 and 1531. So, from the Diet of Spire and Marburg in the year 1529 until those two years later when, when Zwingli and Ecolampadius died. Uh, right in that period is where we're looking at Calvin right now. So, it's, it's, it's interesting for my own sake to get a grasp on what's going on at the same time in different in different places. And, and again, you see this, this, this pouring out, if you will, of Christ in his work in the world. He's doing this here. He's doing that there. He's, is, as if he's casting that seed uh, as the sower. The word is, is going forth into men's hearts here, into men's hearts there. Well, Calvin immediately sought seclusion. Uh, something like, again, like, like Paul going to Arabia after the Lord arrested him on the road to Damascus. Uh, he sought seclusion so that he could, he could apply himself wholly to the Scriptures, throw all his powers without any distraction into learning Christ in the Scriptures. Uh, he found this difficult because the more he, the more he separated himself, began studying the Scriptures, uh, his gifts couldn't be hid from others. When he gathered together secretly with, with those persecuted uh, groups of Christians in Paris, uh, meeting secretly, because now they, they were roughly, I mean, they were essentially banned uh, from meeting in public. So, Calvin, as he advanced in the knowledge of Christ, uh, began to exhibit gifts, these, these gifts in their incipient stages that he would exhibit more greatly in the years to come. He says, I then sought some secluded corner where I might be withdrawn, but all my retreats were like public schools. My one great object was to live in seclusion without being known. But God so led me 
that he never permitted me to rest in any place until, in spite of my natural disposition, he brought me forth to public notice. So he's very much more like Melanchthon and uh, Echolampadius in, in his um, wish to not really mingle so much. Um, uh, there's a certain passivity here. Passivity is the wrong word uh, because there was so much ardor. But antisocial, I suppose you could say, uh, as opposed to Zwingli and Luther, who were very outgoing. It's, it's, it's fascinating to see the difference, humanly speaking, of personalities and how the Lord worked through each of them, in a sense, clothing his own work through the foibles of men. This is what the Paris Evangelicals meeting in secret said when Calvin was in their midst and he would begin commenting on Scripture. The word of Christ is always a fire, they said, but when he explains it, this fire shines out with unusual brilliance. Well, one of those in those circles that heard Calvin beginning to teach and was deeply moved by him was about to become the rector of the University of Paris. And this was Nicholas Kopp. Nicholas Kopp, a friend of, Luther, of, of uh, Calvin. On All Saints Day, 1533, so this is November 1st, 1533, Kopp gave his inaugural address to the students and the faculty combined at the University of Paris. Uh, it was deeply, the speech was deeply imbued with the sentiments of Calvin and even had some phrases that sound uh, strangely like Calvin's explicit words. So it has, it has been thought by historians since then that this was actually uh, more or less Calvin's work that was being presented through Nicholas Kopp. Soli de gratia, said Kopp. The grace of God alone remits sin. And then he said this, Christ is the true and only intercessor with the Father. Well, this is, this is Protestant dogma, certainly. Christ is the true and only intercessor with the Father. Well, these, these were very... Uh, sharp words coming on All Saints Day when you're supposed to be giving some kind of lecture in recognition of the saints and, and how the treasury of merits enables us to garner merits from them and come before the Lord with them. Uh, clearly, the Lutheran heresy was being uttered by Cobb. Everyone knew it. Uh, unrest was growing in the crowd. Finally, when it was over, uh, the the men of the Sorbonne sought out Cop uh, to arrest him. He barely escaped for his life. It was like the shortest tenure ever of a rectorship at the University of Paris. I mean, we're, we're speaking almost hours long. Uh, he escaped barely for his life up to Basel, where uh, Erasmus lived. Calvin also was pursued because it was, it was clear that he had something to do with this. He barely escaped at the last second through his bedroom window through some, some towels and, and bedclothes that he tied together and was let down through, through the window. And he escaped. He left uh, the north of France, or Paris anyhow, central France, went into the south of France and uh, found refuge in the estate. It was a large estate of a boyhood friend who was very wealthy and had become a priest in the Catholic Church. They were still on good terms. And so he was enabled... Uh, to have some solitary confinement for quite a number of months. He spent nights, whole nights in the library. There was a private library full of the church fathers. And he began to devour the writings of the church fathers, uh, along with his scriptural study. 
committed very much of the church fathers to memory, even at this time. His mind was just prodigious. Here a thought began to rise in his mind. Must I be silent and give unbelievers an opportunity of condemning a doctrine they do not know? Why should not the Reformed have a confession to lay before their adversaries? Well, this was the first conception of his great work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. Uh, It began small, and it grew larger and larger and larger. Uh, But this was his first thought about it. And uh, so, so he wanted to get to work writing this. Well, while he was in the south of France, at this place, he had gotten word that Lefebvre, who had been up in Basel, uh, I'm sorry, well, Strasbourg, I mean, uh, was in the vicinity, in this little town of Nirac, which was close by where he was. And so he inquired surreptitiously and found out where Lefebvre lived, and he showed up unannounced at his door, knocked on the door, the door opened, and this small, white-haired man opened, uh, one year shy of 80, 80 years old, so he was 79 at this time, He invited him in, they sat down, and he looked at Calvin after they had talked at length. And he said, young man, you will one day be a powerful instrument in the Lord's hand. But be on your guard against the extreme ardor of your mind. Even in that short interview, he could see there was an intensity about Calvin. Be on your guard against the extreme ardor of your mind. Take Melanchthon as your pattern and let your strength be always tempered with charity. Well, uh, it was a wonderful time they had together. Finally, they, they embraced, they parted ways. Uh, Calvin and Melanchthon would indeed become very, very close friends in their work of the gospel during these Reformation years. Um, colleagues, very close. Uh, but Calvin never did take uh, the advice of Lefebvre to take Melanchthon for his pattern. Uh, he, he loved Melanchthon like a, like a brother, an older brother, But um, he himself rebuked Melanchthon on a number of occasions in timely fashion when Melanchthon was making compromises that that were uh, harmful to the work of the gospel. In Melanchthon's desire to be ecumenical and to bring about a unity, which he still hoped between the Catholics and the Protestants, he hoped that they could have an agreement. And so he he and Bucer also is guilty of this, uh, would temper their language to make it a little ambiguous so that they could combine together. But Calvin and Luther certainly uh, saw the danger in making ambiguous language when you're making confessions for unity, because then you can both agree on the words, but the substance is still, there's a chasm between the two. And so there's an appearance of unity, uh, and it dilutes the gospel. You need sharpness of language when it comes to the expressions of the gospel, in contrast to those pseudo-gospels that are floating all about. So... That was a, a, a sharp difference between Melanchthon and Bucer on the one hand and Calvin and Luther on the other. It made Calvin and Luther certainly more disagreeable men uh, on the whole than Melanchthon and Bucer. But you, I hope you see the strength there as well. And, and we would not be wrong to say that Paul, at the appropriate times, was a very disagreeable man. Very disagreeable man when it came to contending for the gospel against those uh, false gospels that Paul said are no gospels at all, actually. They look like it, but they're not the gospel of Jesus Christ because they strike at the glory of Christ in his work in the gospel. Well, enough of that. They embraced, they parted. 
Now we're approaching the summer of 1534. And Calvin, he's now 25 years old, had his sights set on Basel uh, to pursue this work of, of, of uh, the early edition of the Institutes. Uh, to, in, to find, he said, in some obscure corner, the quiet refused to me elsewhere. Well, first, though, before he came to Basel, where he wanted to basically make his home and live the life of a quiet scholar uh, away from all of the, the chaos in the world, he decided to go to Strasbourg first. And there he met Martin Bucer, and they would strike up this lifelong friendship. They were, they were colleagues for the rest of their lives. Uh, Bucer was very happy with Calvin, and he said, well, let's go down to Basel and meet Erasmus. I want you to meet Erasmus, who was a hero for Calvin. Calvin, again, was brought up in this humanist tradition. And so, as Farrell had met uh, Erasmus, now Calvin is going to meet Erasmus in the company of Bucer. So they come to, to Basel, they meet Erasmus, who now is almost 70 years old. Uh, the three sat together. The humanist Erasmus was very pleasant, ambiguous, undogmatic as usual. Uh, all smiles. But as the meeting went on, he grew uneasy with, with Calvin's acute force. Uh, very dogmatic in the things of the gospel. And uh, he leaned over reputedly to Bucer and said, I see a great pestilence rising in the church from the church, or I should say against the church. I see a great pestilence rising in the church against the church. Well, that's what he had to say about Calvin. Now, if you recall, he said much the same thing about Pharaoh. So we want to leave Calvin in Basel and then come to Pharaoh right now. And then, in a bit, we'll see them converging in Geneva. So, Farrell, since he left Strasbourg with Bucer, where did he go? Well, he determined to travel south into Switzerland and go to the cantons of Switzerland. Let us scatter seed everywhere, he said. Let civilized France, provoked to jealousy by this barbarous nation of his hometown of France, uh, no, I'm sorry, of Switzerland, which he was calling a barbarous nation, let France, provoked, embrace piety at last. And so now he was in, his, in the thick of his missionary labors, moving from town to town, oftentimes thrown out. Uh, whereas Luther, Zwingli, Bucer were settled pastors for most of their careers, uh, at this point in Farrell's career, he was moving about uh, like the, the Apostle Paul from one city to another, shaking the dust off his feet where the gospel was not accepted and rejoicing when it was. And it, and it indeed was. I mean, he had both, both effects of his gospel ministry, uh, breaking the spell of Roman superstition, certainly attempting to, and preaching the gospel, establishing the gospel, always with the most aggressive spirit, very aggressive spirit. First he went to Egel, uh, then to Bern, then to Valangen, well, to Neuchâtel, then to Valangen, then back to Neuchâtel again, constantly on the move. Uh, you, you have a list of some of those places that he went to that I just mentioned. On the map, you see Bern in the middle. Uh, Neuchâtel and Valangen are just to the west of Bern, and Egel is down uh, just to the east of Sion, down there in the, in the south by Geneva. Well, in Valangen on one occasion, uh, he was denouncing the idolatry of the Mass. And the people were getting enraged because to this, this was eternal life to them. And, and, and you're just desecrating it 
abominating it, uh, declaring blasphemies. So a mob gathered around him and they beat him. They beat him almost to a pulp, forced him to his knees before a statue of the Virgin Mary. So there he is. I mean, it reminds you of some of these terrorist stories that you think of uh, in Islamic lands. But there he was on his knees, uh, the mob around him. He's bloody. Prostrate yourself before Our Lady, they said. And he just looked up and he said, Worship one God alone and not dumb images without life or power. Well, they continued beating him till he was bloody all over, threw him into prison. And he, he, he languished there in prison for some time. It wasn't very long till his friends uh, worked out some legal situation where they were able to get him out and get him released from prison. From there, he went to Neuchâtel. Now, in Neuchâtel, he, he had great success. At every step, says Dabinier, at every step, the papists wished to drive him back. But he made, uh, for every step they wished to drive him back, he made one in advance. People gathered in droves to hear him. It reminds me of Whitfield in the, in the uh, Great Awakening in America, how Whitfield would, would find tombstones and stumps uh, to stand on in open fields. Well, this was essentially what Farrell was doing at this time, and people were coming out of the churches to hear Farrell preached the gospel. Oh, wonderful work of God, he said. He wrote this to a friend. The multitude believed as if it had but one soul. The papists, on the other hand, uh, were being agitated. They said, we must save religion. We must burn this French Luther. So there's the comparison between Farrell and Luther. But Farrell always escaped their grasp in one way or another, uh, whether before the beating or afterwards, and then he would move on. He was constantly recruiting. This is, this is one of the great things about Farrell. He was constantly recruiting from his own converts to put them out into the field to preach the gospel. The work of Christ is glorious now, he says at this time. But what works are yet to be accomplished? What toils to be endured? What enemies to be overcome? We have need of laborers. I cannot promise them mountains of gold, but I know that the Father will never abandon his own. To a young convert, uh, who, who volunteered for the work, he, he wrote a letter. And he said this, Do you possess Christ so as to teach Him purely? Do you seek Christ's glory only? Are you resolved to bear the cross? For be assured, the cross awaits. But if you are ready to bear it, then, dear brother, come instantly. It is not we who fight, but the Lord. It is not we who fight, but the Lord. He wrote to Zwingli, also just before Zwingli was killed in the Battle of Capel. So, coming up to 1531. Oh, how great is the harvest! No one can describe the ardor the people feel for the gospel and the tears I shed when I see the small number of reapers. Dabinier gives a gripping portrait of him at this time. He says, he says this, Calvin was the great doctor of the 16th century, but Farrell was the great evangelist, one of the most remarkable figures in the Reformation. He was not a great writer, but when he spoke, he was almost without equal. He never stopped to discuss idle or frivolous questions, but aimed straight at the conscience. His voice was often like thunder, and his fervent prayers carried away his hearers. His sermon was not a dissertation, but an action, quite as much, uh, quite as, much as a battle. Every time he went into the pulpit, it was to do a work. His zeal can be compared only to St. Paul's. His body was small and feeble. But his activity was wholly apostolic, 
Danger and bad treatment wasted him every day, but he had within him a divine power that rendered him victorious. Well, so here's Pharaoh. And we were talking about Calvin. The two of these now were about to meet in Geneva. So it was to this southernmost city in Geneva that Pharaoh came in October of 1532. So we're to 1532 now. He, he immediately began preaching, and then uh, he was almost as immediately summoned before the magistrates to answer for the commotion that he was, he was creating, the havoc in the city. Who has sent you, and why have you come? It was demanded of him. I am sent by God, and I am come to announce his word. That was his uh, very curt response. Uh, Are you not the man who propagated Luther's heresies at Egel and Neuchatel and through the whole country into confusion? What business have you to go up and down disturbing all the world? My lords, said Pharaoh, I am not a devil. And if I journey to and fro, it is that I may preach Jesus Christ crucified, dead for our sins, risen again for our justification. I am compelled as his ambassador to teach him to all who are willing to hear. It is not I who have troubled Israel, but you and your father's house. That's, you recognize the Elijah language there. Yes, it is you and yours who trouble the world by your traditions, your human inventions, and your dissolute lives. Well, these are not the kind of words that are calculated to win the favor of the magistrates. And so he was expelled promptly. Uh, but he sent his old friend, Olivetan. Remember, they were fellow students with Lefebvre, and this was uh, Calvin's cousin. He sent Olivetan, who happily went into Geneva and began the work a little bit more diplomatically, shall we say, than Pharaoh would have done. And people began being won over. Soon, Farrell was able to come back in, re-enter the city. For the next four years, both men worked together, painfully laboring uh, to, to spread the gospel, to plant the seeds of the gospel. After four years, by 1536, Geneva, by a vote of the city council, embraced the gospel. They became a Protestant city. Well, at this point, we're in the year 1536. Uh, notable things are happening in this year. Uh, Lefebvre, from whom, humanly speaking, the evangelist, this fiery evangelist Farrell had sprung way back in around the year 1512, 13, somewhere around there. Uh, he died. Lefebvre died down in Iraq, 81 years old. William Tyndale was also martyred this year, uh, 1536, in Belgium. October 6th is the anniversary. October 6th, 1536. So Lefebvre died, William Tyndale died, Erasmus also died in Basel, peacefully, uh, not being persecuted, but disillusioned entirely uh, in the hope of peace among men, in a, in a gradual, peaceful enlightenment. He saw hostilities breaking out everywhere, and he was utterly disillusioned, and he died in that state. It was very sad. And then Calvin, Calvin, who was in Basel, had been working for two years among other things, to complete his institutes. Uh, they were completed in 1536, uh, this work, great work, one of the great works. Completed hastily, I should say. Now, it was completed hastily because of the persecution that was increasing uh, by leaps and bounds in Paris. We don't have time to go in to the affair of the placards, which was, was a, a, a great debacle for the Protestants. And King Francis then exerted this this reign of persecution 
of putting to death Protestants, one after the, the other. And so Calvin, with more urgency, finished the Institutes to get this defensive confession out. So it was published. Uh, they are burning many faithful and holy people, says Calvin at this time, with what furious rage the enemies of God are transported. He dedicated the work to the king, to King Francis, who was behind all the persecution. And he says this in his preface to the Institutes. Sire, I undertake the common cause of all believers, even that of Christ himself, a cause so rent and trodden down in your kingdom. Do not turn away in disdain, for our doctrine must remain exalted, invincible, far above all the glory and power of the world. For it is not ours, but that of the living God and his Christ, whom God has made king to rule unto the ends of the earth, well, eventually Calvin ended up making his way to find another quiet place in Geneva. He planned only to spend the night. He had actually gotten there by detour because he couldn't go his normal route because of war uh, at the time between the Pope and the Emperor. He ended up spending the night in Geneva, planned on leaving the next morning, but uh, Farrell found out that he was there. And he had already read the Institutes because this was several months earlier now. They were published. He wanted Calvin to stay. And so he rushed to greet him. Help me, he said. There is work to be done in this city. Calvin, I cannot stop here more than one night. Why do you seek elsewhere, said Farrell, for what is now offered you right here? It's the work of the Lord. Calvin said he was no leader. He was just a scholar. He wasn't good with people. He wanted to find a quiet place to work elsewhere. Look first at the place you are now in, said Farrell. If you refuse, the work may perish and the fault would be yours. But there are special labors, said Calvin, for which, I wish, for which I wish to reserve myself. And this city can't afford me the leisure I desire. Farrell says, study? Leisure? What? Must we never practice? I am sinking under my task. Help me. But, said Calvin, the frail state of my health needs rest. Rest? Death alone permits the soldiers of Christ to rest from their labors. But I am timid, said Calvin. How can I withstand such roaring waves? I beg you in God's name, have pity on me. No pity was forthcoming from Pharaoh. In the name of Almighty God, he said, I declare that if you do not answer to his summons, not my summons, but his summons, he will not bless your plans. May God curse your repose. May God curse your studies. If in such a great necessity... As in such, if in such a great necessity as ours, you withdraw and refuse to give us help and support. Calvin said it seemed like the hand of God was just coming down out of heaven and gripping him and fixing him in that place. He couldn't do anything but capitulate to the command that was being given to him. He saw it as a divine command, an injunction. And so his motto from this time forth became my heart to you I offer, O Lord. Promptly and sincerely. And we'll conclude with that. And indeed, that, that surely is the prayer of every one of us. So let's conclude in prayer. Lord, dismiss us in your grace. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior, and the head of his church, who is building it even now. In his name we pray. Amen.